Pray with me, please. Father, we have just sung of the finished work of Jesus Christ. We give you thanks for it. And so this morning as we prepare ourselves in just a little while to gather around a table in which we celebrate our remembrance of what Christ has done, Father, prepare even now our hearts. Submit them by your Spirit to the working of your Word. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Turn in your copy of the Scriptures, if you would please, to the book of Genesis, chapter 8. We're thankful this week for the healthy birth of our daughter, Christine, and for healthy mama. Unfortunately, as soon as we arrived home from the hospital, the other three decided that they were no longer going to be healthy, and so our house turned into an overnight infirmary all week, so we are operating on a bit of a sleep deficit, but but altogether now healthy, and mom's healthy, and baby's healthy, which is the important thing. Very thankful for all of the notes, for all of the calls, the prayers, and for the many meals that we've received. The food has been very good, and so I had to spend an extra 15 minutes on the exercise bike this morning. We're very appreciative of all of those things. I do want to just say, however, I thought for just a little bit of bringing my baby up here with me, but I thought using a baby like, say, Rob or Tim did as a shameless prop is really not an appropriate thing in the house of the Lord, so we're not going to do that. In late September 1938, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, the French Prime Minister, the Italian dictator Benito Mussolini, and Adolf Hitler all got together for a conversation in Munich. The subject of that discussion was the unprovoked German invasion of Czechoslovakia, or what is today the Czech Republic and Slovakia. The British Prime Minister Chamberlain warned Hitler in that meeting that any further acts of aggression would inevitably require a response from the other European countries that would likely result in a conflict that would involve the whole European continent. The message from the English and the French was simple. Further German aggression would result in another world war. To this, Hitler responded that he had been completely misunderstood. He had no intention, he claimed, of any further military action. He was not interested, he insisted, in Germany conquering the rest of Europe. He promised, in fact, that there would be peace in Europe if only he was simply allowed to keep the territory of Czechoslovakia that Germany had just invaded. That's all that he wanted. Give me what we've just conquered and there can be peace. Of course, Germany had invaded without cause, but that was all beside the point. The English and the French were all too eager to give in to Hitler's demands, to appease Hitler by giving in to his demands to keep parts of Czechoslovakia on the promise that that would result in peace. It did not matter, of course, that no members of the actual Czechoslovakian government were present at this meeting as the French and English gave chunks of their country away. The message from the English and the French was clear. It's okay to gobble up all of the other small little European countries so long as we know that you aren't coming for us. No one wants another world war. Prime Minister Chamberlain left that meeting in Munich convinced that he had negotiated one of the greatest peace deals in history. As he disembarked from his plane back in England, Chamberlain brandished aloft the agreement signed by Hitler and famously declared to the gathered reporters and crowd, My good friends, for the second time in our history, a British Prime Minister has returned from Germany bringing peace with honor. I believe it is peace in our time. 
In reality, there had been no honor in it at all, and there would be no peace for a very long time. Five months after signing the Munich Agreement, Hitler broke his promise and invaded the rest of Czechoslovakia. Six months after that, he invaded Poland, and all of Europe was at war. And Chamberlain and the other allies learned a very difficult and painful lesson that would be repeated again and again and again in the years that followed. That Hitler's promises were empty and meaningless. We are accustomed to living in a world in which broken promises are commonplace and where kept promises are so rare that when they happen, it catches our attention. A world in which doubt and cynicism and suspicion and skepticism are traits that are learned by hard experience in a world in which talk is cheap and promises are made and broken thoughtlessly. Political promises that we know are meaningless. Advertising claims that are worse than meaningless. Marriage vows becoming so increasingly meaningless. It's not as though people have stopped making promises. People still make all kinds of promises all the time. The problem is that people infrequently keep their promises. And as a result, we stop believing in promises. How does the saying go, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me? Maybe you're here this morning and that's kind of your life motto. Maybe you've been burned or hurt by people. Maybe you've developed trust issues. People who have betrayed you, gone back on their word, broken covenants, broken promises, broken trust. Well, this morning in our text in the book of Genesis, we find a text that is all about a God who makes promises. <clears throat> but not just a God who makes promises, but even more importantly, a God who keeps his promises. A God who keeps every promise every time. We've been in over the last few weeks in this section of Genesis looking at the, the theme of judgment. And in the last few weeks, we've noticed that even in this section on judgment, God has been making and keeping promises. A promise first to judge the world, which he did. He brought a global flood of destruction. And then in the midst of this judgment of a flood, a promise to Noah and his family to save the righteous. And God kept that promise. He has now delivered Noah and his family and the animals on the ark from the flood of destruction. And it is with that context in place that we approach our text this morning as Noah and his family and all the creatures in the ark now emerge into this post-flood world that we find that once again God is making promises. And as we look at our text this morning, I'd like for us to note three truths in particular. Here's the first one. When we experience the faithfulness of the promise-keeping God, our response should be worship. We left off last time in verse 19 of chapter 8 when Noah and his family and the animals have now finally emerged from the ark back onto dry land. We pick up in verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, 
seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. What is the first thing that you would want to do after getting off a boat after a really, really long sea voyage? Maybe we can think of something analogous in our minds. If you've ever been on a long camping trip or a long hiking trip, you enjoy it for a while, and then you get toward the end of the camping trip or the hiking trip, and you begin to think about what it is going to be like when you finally get back to civilization. And you start to anticipate some things that you're going to enjoy. Maybe you start to think about getting clean clothes, having a nice warm shower, getting to sleep in your own bed. For me, I always think about what I'm going to eat as soon as I get back to civilization. Pizza is just, it's going to happen within 24 hours of me getting back home. So what would be the first thing that you would be thinking about if you got off a boat after being on it for such a great period of time? Noah's been on this boat for more than a year. I'm sure he's been dreaming of what he's going to do the moment he gets off of this floating zoo. And as he finally does, as he emerges from the ark, the whole world is now laid out before him. And Noah and his family, they now have to start over, not only for themselves, they're starting over for the rest of humanity. All of human civilization has just been wiped out. So if you're Noah, everything that you did in the first 600 years of your life that you were not able to bring with you on that boat is totally gone. You're starting over. There's so much to do. You, you need to choose a place to live. You need to start building a house. You need to start cultivating land. You need to go out and to discover this new world. You need to begin to subdue it. You need to figure out how you're going to remake some of the tools and technologies and skills that were all lost in this global destruction. You have a huge to-do list. In the face of that reality, I think we might forgive Noah if he immediately started jumping into a series of tasks that he needs to perform, but that's not what Noah does. Noah worships. That is the first thing that Noah does. All other business is secondary to the immediate need of expressing his thankfulness to God for his salvation through an act of worship in the form of a sacrifice. Noah has had a front row seat over the last year to an incredible performance, an incredible display of God's sovereignty. Sovereignty to bring every kind of animal submissively to the ark. Sovereignty to open the waters of the heavens and the waters of the deep. Sovereignty to cover the valleys and the hills and the cliffs and the mountaintops and continents the world over with water. Sovereignty to close the ark door. Sovereignty to determine who got to be inside of the ark and who was outside of the ark. Sovereignty to preserve the life of those on the ark through a tidal flood that destroyed life of every living thing that was on land or in the air. Sovereignty to then command the rain to stop. And then the flood to cease, and then new life to grow again upon the earth. What is the only correct response that a person can have when confronted with a view of the godness of God and an experience of God's saving grace? What is the only right response? It's worship. See, right theology, our, our right thinking, our right understanding, our right viewing of God, right theology is always intended to culminate in doxology, worship. What we know about God, what we experience about God, what we see about God is to overflow in wholehearted worship. And so Noah offers burnt offerings of each of the clean animals. Now, 
Later, the Old Testament is going to define for us what clean animals are. They are those animals that chew the cud and have cloven hooves, animals like cattle and deer and goats and sheep. And you'll remember that there were seven pairs of these clean animals that went onto the ark. So as Noah offers these, he's not destroying the population potential of these animals. There were intentionally extra of all the clean animals for this precise eventuality. And the burnt offering that Noah offers here is an interesting type of offering in the Old Testament because it is an act that expresses the wholehearted worship and devotion of the worshiper. Because in a burnt offering, every part of the sacrifice is burnt up and is consumed, which is meant to picture the complete, unreserved, and total commitment of the heart of the worshiper to God. Just as every part of the sacrifice is consumed so that there's nothing left for the one offering the sacrifice, it is a picture of the heart being offered to God. Everything consumed with a love for who God is. And in this case, it beautifully expresses Noah's response to his deliverance. In light of his salvation, Noah is offering himself wholly, entirely, completely to God. We need to keep moving in our text, but I want to pause here to make one application before we do so. Our regular response to seeing God at work should be worship. You and I are created for worship. That's what we're made for. It's why your breath catches when you see an incredible sunset. It's why your soul stands up inside of you. It rises in amazement when you look into a clear night sky. You can't help yourself. You were made for this. You were created for this. You were designed to see God's glory. You were designed to reflect God's glory. And you were created to proclaim God's glory. That is what we are made for. It's why our mission statement as a church is we are called to glorify God. Because it's true of us corporately as a group of believers and it's true of us individually as believers. It's the most obvious mission statement that there is. It's what we were created for. It's what we were redeemed in Christ for. I don't know how often we stop and think then about what that should practically mean in our lives. What does it mean to glorify God? What does it mean to live a life of worship? How often... Do you and I pause to worship God? And I don't mean here how often do we stop in the middle of some public place and start singing the words of some hymn that we know. I get that that might be socially strange in some settings. And that's not all worship is. If that's what we conceive worship to be, we have confused in our minds what worship is. What I mean is how often do we stop for a moment, even in the middle of life, in the middle of a busy week, in the middle of a busy day, but when we see something or we understand something or we, we understand in a new way something about who God is, do we pause for just a moment in the quietness of our own heart for a moment simply to say, God, you are supremely worthy. See, worship is not a Sunday morning experience. It's not an event that you come to to watch or even to participate in. Yes, we set aside an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday mornings for a worship service, but that is our corporate worship together as a church, as a group of believers, and that's important. But even in this service, do you realize that it's not just the singing and the music that are the worship? The prayer is worship. The scripture reading is worship. Communion is worship. Baptism is worship. The giving is worship. Those who are serving right now in our building 
are worshiping. And this service is no way to be the extent of our worship. It's just the collective jumping off point for the start of our week that we come together to worship God and then give the rest of our week to God in our individual acts of worship. And like the burnt offering shows us, every part of our lives should be consumed with worship. Not part of our lives. We're not an extra part that we're trying to save off for ourselves to keep for us. Every part of our lives should be given to the Lord. The Christian life is a life of wholehearted worship. Which means that the way that you go to work and the things that you do at work every day is an opportunity for worship. The way that you interact with your coworkers and your neighbors and your friends and your family members and the random strangers that the Lord places in your life every day, an opportunity for worship. The way that you use your time and your money and your energy, opportunities for worship. The way that you handle your emotions, worship. The way that you love your spouse, the way that you love your kids, Worship every one of those an opportunity to make it your mission that you are called to glorify God. When we see God at work and when we catch a glimpse of who He is and what He has done, our first response should be worship. I remind you, God delivered Noah from the flood, and that was pretty great, and He was very thankful for it. But God gave His Son to deliver us from hell. One of those things is greater than the other. And so if Noah's response was immediate worship, what should our response be? I think Paul gives it to us in Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. A regular response to seeing God at work should be worship. Second thought from our text this morning, God makes promises to us that we don't deserve. From what we just read, God then smells the aroma, the pleasing aroma of Noah's sacrifice, and then in response to Noah's sacrifice, God says something that I would like to suggest to you is both completely unexpected and at the same time totally shocking. God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease." Now, why is that statement from God, why is that totally shocking? The reason I think that is such a shocking statement to make is when we notice the reason why God promises that He will never again curse the ground or destroy all life. What is the reason that God gives? It's right there in the middle of verse 21. For reason or explanation, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Hang on a minute, wasn't that the reason the flood came in the first place? If we go back to Genesis 6, there's this case that Moses is building as he records what's happening in the pre-flood world, that the intention of man's heart is only on evil all the time, and that God looks upon the earth, and behold, it's filled with violence, which is why God 
brings the flood. But now the corruption of man, that thing which originally brought the flood, is now the reason that God is saying He will never again destroy the world with a flood. So what's going on here? What's going on here is that God is being both realistic and gracious in His assessment of the post-flood world. Realistic because God is here acknowledging that He has only temporarily dealt with the problem of human sin in the world. See, the problem of sin in the world reemerges the moment that the door of the ark is opened. Because as Noah and his family come out of the ark and go back out into the world, they are bringing their sinful hearts and their fallen nature right along with them. And therefore, God is being not only realistic, but He is being gracious in His promise to not simply repeat this destruction over and over and over again every few generations. The flood was a warning to the world that sin will one day be decisively dealt with. But in the meantime, God is graciously promising that He will not deal with sin through an ongoing cycle of global destruction. There's going to be another means of remedying the issue of sin. It's an incredible statement that reveals God's patience and His grace toward the undeserving, which is, of course, what grace is, unmerited favor, undeserved kindness. But there's also, with this gracious promise, a subtle warning of a promise of a future judgment that still is to come. Because notice that the promise that day and night, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter will not cease, that promise is only as good as while the earth shall last. So implicitly, there is an expiration date, a warning that is being given that the earth in its present corrupted and fallen condition is now a temporary arrangement. There is a judgment that is coming. The text goes on in verse 1 of chapter 9, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. We see in this recommissioning ceremony that Noah is being cast here as the new Adam. Notice the similar language that recalls Genesis 1 and 2. Noah emerges from the ark into this new world as the father of the rest of humanity. And he is commissioned like Adam with the charge to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. And God, like Adam, blesses him. And once again, there is a giving of dominion to Noah like dominion was given to Adam. But notice a significant change. Because no longer will the earth gladly enjoy Adam's reign. Now with Noah, post-fall, post-flood, there is a significant change. Now this dominion will be realized through fear and dread, the text says. 
In other words, this new dominion is going to require a certain degree of domination between man and creation. And notice also that it is no longer simply the plants that are given for food, as back in Genesis 1. It is now the animals themselves that are offered to humanity. So now death is an anticipated part of the way of things. Death, by the way, not only for the animals, but death also in human relationships. The expectation that violence will return with the reemergence of humanity. Sin and judgment, even after the flood, continue to fundamentally change our relationships. Our relationships with creation, our relationships with each other, our relationship with God. And so once again, even in this moment of blessing, God is here being realistic. This new beginning for humanity and the world has some Edenic themes, but it is not a return to Eden. This is still the world east of Eden, a world after the fall. The flood has provided a temporary cleansing, but it is only temporary. The world has not yet really been set to rights. And yet, this post-flood world reveals that God has not given up His ultimate purpose for His creation and His purpose for humanity that was expressed in the opening chapters of Genesis. Because the language given to Noah that recalls God's commissioning of Adam reminds us That God's purpose in Eden of His image bearers multiplying, filling the earth until every part of the earth proclaims God's glory, that that purpose has not been thwarted by the serpent's deception or by man's rebellion. And we need to understand this. No power of hell, no scheme of man is capable of upsetting the plans of Almighty God. And because God has an ongoing plan for humanity, He here reaffirms the worth and dignity of human life and the corresponding need to protect it. And so here God institutes the penalty of capital punishment, a life for a life. So even as God is making promises to not continually wipe out all of humanity on account of our evil, the reality of human sin still remains, which means that violence will continue, but this violence will not be allowed to exist unrestrained as it was in the pre-flood world. Now, there will be a price. Forfeiting the life of an image bearer means that your own life is now forfeit. And so we see here that God is making promises and offering blessings to humanity that we truly do not deserve because the condition of our heart, and yet In this text, God is not done making promises, which leads us to the final main thought of our text this morning, and that is this. We can have confidence about the future because our God is a covenant keeper. Verse 8, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh 
that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. On March 8th of 2014, I made one of the best statements that I have ever made in my life. Isaac, take you, Corinne, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance. And thereto I pledge you my faithfulness. I was then asked, what pledge do you give of the sincerity of your vows? And I replied, a ring. I then placed that ring on Corinne's, on Corinne's finger, and I said, with this ring I thee wed, and with all my worldly goods I thee endow, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I don't know if Kryn would have been quite as excited if she had realized exactly the content of the worldly goods I was endowing her with. But I made that day a covenant with my wife, and I offered to her my covenant love. And the sign of that covenant that I made with her was sealed with the ring that I placed on her finger. What is a covenant? A covenant is a binding commitment between two or more persons on the basis of a promise. My marriage covenant with my wife is ultimately my commitment to keep the promises that I have made to her. A covenant is all about the promises that are being made, which means that a covenant is only as good as two factors. One is the trustworthiness of the person making the covenant, and the second is the ability of the person making the covenant. Because if the person you are making a covenant with is unreliable, untrustworthy, or a liar, then the covenant is meaningless. There's no point to it. You have no expectation that the terms will ever be met. Or if the person is incapable of delivering on what they had promised, if they don't have the ability to do what they say that they will do, if they can't keep the terms of the covenant, if it's outside their control, the covenant's pointless. And therefore, there is no better person to receive covenant promises from than from someone who is all-faithful and who is all-powerful. The Bible is full of covenants that God makes with people. And in the Bible, God makes these covenant commitments to people on the strength of His own promises. These covenants are incredibly important in the scope of redemptive history because these covenants represent God's redemptive promises to humanity that lead us progressively to Christ. So we have here the Noahic Covenant, which will be followed in a few chapters by the Abrahamic Covenant, and then later the Mosaic Covenant, and then in the future the Davidic Covenant. Each covenant has its own emphasis, but each one of them leading us step by step, pointing to Jesus. So covenants are incredibly important, and here in Genesis chapter 9, we get to the first covenant in all of the Bible. And much like I provided my wife and she with me a sign of our covenant, of our, of our marriage covenant in the form of a ring, something that every time I look at it and see it and touch it, I'm reminded of the vows that I made to her and I remember the promises that I have committed to keep to her, God also gives a sign of his covenant in the form of a rainbow. So that after a heavy rain, there is a visible display across the sky that reminds the world that God is keeping every moment his 
promise, his covenant of mercy and grace. And in that rainbow, we are reminded of four things. First, that God is just, because the rainbow reminds us that God has judged the world for sin once. Second, we are reminded in the rainbow that God is patient and merciful, that despite the fact that we deserve the global destruction that came upon the world in the flood, that God is restraining His wrath in patience, desiring more to come to the knowledge of the truth. The rainbow reminds us, third, that God is faithful to His promises. He does absolutely what He says He will do. He kept the Noahic covenant, is keeping the Noahic covenant. He has done He has kept His promises past. We can trust He will keep His promises future. The rainbow reminds us, fourth, that God will also be faithful to His promise when He destroys the world again. Because the Noahic covenant is a promise that God will never again destroy the world with water. Which is why the New Testament authors tell us that the judgment that is coming will be a purification with fire. In the light of all of that in our text, I'd like to close this morning with two final thoughts of how we can apply this text to our lives and our situations. And in that, I'd like to consider one wrong response that we could take from this text and one right response. So here would be a wrong response. To view God's mercy as a license for sin. We established earlier that the flood does not fix the reality of evil in the human heart. And so the fact that a global flood doesn't come along every few generations to wipe out humanity and start over is not an indicator of mankind's improved moral condition. That's not what that signifies. It's an indicator instead of God's patient mercy. But what a horrific thing it is to confuse or misrepresent God's patient mercy with tolerance. To believe that God doesn't care about our sin, or perhaps that he tolerates it, or that maybe he's even affirming of the evil things that we do. And yet that is exactly what the world tells us. And by the way, it's not only what the world tells us, it's what so many mainline churches are teaching today. And in tolerating and affirming all kinds of activity that God in his word has condemned as sinful, What is the symbol that our culture has appropriated as this sign of tolerance? A rainbow. What arrogance. What a satanic delusion. To turn a symbol of God's mercy into a banner of human rebellion. Friends, God will not be mocked forever. The rainbow in the sky is not an acknowledgement by God that he was too harsh in judging the world and that he regretted what he had done. It is not what the rainbow is intended to signify. It is instead a reminder of God's grace and patience that continue to be extended to the undeserving that they may come to a knowledge of the truth while the earth remains. It is a temporary situation. And so to brandish as a symbol of human depravity what was intended to symbolize God's divine mercy is so much worse than just missing the point. It is to make the eternally damning error of treating God's mercy as a license to sin. Friends, by the way, that's that's true not just of the 
sexual perversity of our culture today. It's true for each one of us every time we treat the grace of God as license to continue living for ourselves and not submitting our hearts to Christ. To trample underfoot, to take for granted the blood of Christ, to live for our own desires and then to keep coming back to this communion table and just know in our hearts and our minds that grace will cover, grace will cover. That attitude, Paul says, God forbid it. Yes, grace is there to meet us when we sin, but it is not a covering for a heart that desires to pursue evil. Let us not make the mistake. It would be such a wrong treatment of our text to view mercy, God's patient mercy, as license to sin. That is what we must not do. So then the right response from this text and from the Noahic covenant. The right response would be to trust that the one who has kept every covenant that he has ever made will keep the covenant that he has established with all who are in Christ Jesus. We are used to living in a world of broken promises, broken agreements, and broken covenants. Living in a world in which marriage vows mean precious little. Where a politician waving aloft a piece of paper and shouting, peace with honor, peace in our time, means nothing more than the worthless piece of paper that it's written on. But brothers and sisters, every one of you who has placed your faith and hope in Jesus Christ can shout, I have peace with God in full confidence because our covenant maker is a covenant keeper. He kept, is keeping the Noahic covenant. He kept the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant and the Davidic covenant. But none of those covenants fixed the fundamental issue that God himself identified in our text in chapter 8, verse 21. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So God kept the covenants, but none of those covenants solved the basic issue that exists between God and man. And so God says, I will do something new. And God sent his son, who on the night in which he was betrayed, said, this is the new covenant of my blood given for you. If you have trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ, then friend, let nothing steal away your confidence that God will absolutely keep the saving promises that he has made to you in Jesus. Stand in full assurance that God makes covenant commitments that he intends to keep and none more than in the person of his son. Standing on the promises, I shall not fall. Listening every moment to the Spirit's call. Resting in my Savior, as my all in all, standing on the promises of God. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that unlike us, you are a God who keeps his promises. A God who is all faithful and all powerful, that nothing that you promise or covenant with us to do you will fail to do in any respect. So as we place our hope and our trust in the promises that are offered to us in Jesus Christ, we have boldness to know that we stand in grace in full assurance, as Paul writes to Titus, 
in hope of eternal life that God who cannot lie promised before ages began. Thank you for these promises, God. May we hold to them in assurance of faith through the power of Christ. Amen.